1: Everybody, and I mean everybody. That's David, that's me, that's you, that's your mom, your dad, your best friend, and your worst enemy. Everybody is in
0: pain. Mm. And everybody is trying to feel better. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process hey welcome to the show excited for our guest today we have got a fantastic guru might not be too strong a word for our guest today he's shaking his head but yeah when you when you hear who we're talking about that might not be inappropriate our guest today is dove bear let me tell you about him he's been named twice to the list of the world's top 30 global leadership gurus and inc magazine's top 100 leaders leadership speakers he is the founder and host of two podcasts. The first one is Leadership and Loyalty. This is Apple Podcasts' number one podcast for Fortune 500 executives. And Inc Magazine has also rated it as the number one podcast to make you a better leader. And, uh, and I, Karen and I have been guests on, on Dove's uh, podcast, and it is fantastic, so I encourage you to check that out. He's also an independent contributor to all kinds of media outlets, CEO World, CNN, L, Italia, Entrepreneur, Medium, Fox. And he's worked for over 30 years committed uh, with committed elite-level leaders in their organizations to have impactful influence on leadership, business, and politics. Uh, best-selling author, One Red Thread, and Fiercely Loyal, How High-Performing Companies Develop and Retain Top Talent. And as a speaker, and I love some of these venues, He Dove has pre- uh, presented to the United Nations, the World Management Forum in Iran, and the famed Servant Leadership Institute. Dove Baron, thank you for being a guest today. We so appreciate you here uh, being on leadership without losing your soul. Welcome.
1: Thank you, David. It's an honor, a pleasure to be here. And uh, anything that's about not losing
0: your soul, I, I'm, I'm all in. You're in, you're in on that. All right. Well yeah, Ed, we're definitely. in the we're in the right place. So, uh, Dove, I, I'd like to start by asking you to take us back pretty early, wherever you want to go with this. Is what is your earliest memory of yourself as a leader? <laughs>
1: So before an official title, of course, my earliest memory of me as a leader is seven years old, seven years old, um, come down the stairs into a very narrow hallway towards the front door. Uh, There's a shadow blocking the light to the doorway. The door is open and I look out and feel enormous sadness just intuitively and say, Dad, Dad, where are you going? Uh, My father was blocking the doorway, um, turns around, walks back towards me, crouches down, puts his hand on one shoulder, then on the other, and then fluffs my hair. And you think about it, it's almost like knighting somebody. And he says, I'm going now, son. You're the man of the house. At seven years old, my childhood was done. Mm-hmm. but I was being asked to step into the role of a leader. And that was a horrendous thing to happen to a seven-year-old child and should never happen to a child. Um, and because I took on the responsibility of being a leader in my family, for my mother, for my siblings, etc., But it was also the groundwork for understanding that I am here for something more than me. So I think in many ways it was a, It was a way to push my ego to the side, even as a kid, not saying my ego got moved, uh, removed at all. It didn't because it doesn't happen, but it it made me realize that I had a bigger responsibility. So I guess it was there. That's the first experience of it.
0: Wow. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And it it strikes me that you said, well, you know, without it wasn't a formal title, but you really did receive a formal title at that point. Uh, Not one you were looking for, but there you go.
1: No. And, and, I, and, and, you know, again, it's a dysfunctional and terrible thing to happen. And I don't want to undermine that in any way, shape or form. Um, but it's that moment. We, we all go through life where we have experiences where we have to make a choice. And, and most people's choices, even as leaders, are unconscious choices. We don't really think about it. Oh, we we respond as if it's For now. And we don't understand that nothing is for now. Everything has an impact over a long period of time. And you've got to be willing to live with the consequences of that as a leader. And so, you know, well, we'll just do this now. And then we'll do that. No, no, no. You will do this now. And there will be ripple effects even when you do something else. So you have to be cognizant of that. You have to pay attention to that. And you have to, it's my language. So I'm, I'm not in any way trying to undermine what you're saying, uh, David, with the title of your show, but it, you've got to take care of your soul. You've got to take care of your soul. And so what does that mean? It means, is this aligned with my purpose on the planet? Is this aligned with my maxims? Is this aligned with who I say and what I say I serve? Because if it's not, That's probably a bad decision for you at this time, because you will look back and go, oh, why did I do that? And we all make excuses in the moment. I get it. I've done it, too. We've all done it. And we all can justify. But justification is just a set of rational lies. We rationalize whatever it is we're doing. So I think it's a really important piece for everybody to get, particularly in the context of your show, is do you question whether this is powerful and impactful in a positive way to my soul or is this in some way shaving a little piece
0: off and justifying it that's a powerful question to ask and that is not only as does that not undermine the title it is as aligned as could be that's exactly mm. what we're talking about is that human-centered leadership and doing things in alignment with our own soul so that we're not sacrificing our humanity along the way You know dove as you were sharing your childhood experience it's taking me back myself when you said seven years old that might be the youngest i ask every guest this question that might be the Mm -hmm. youngest memory mine is 11 years old so you got me beat by four years but shared some shared experience there where as the oldest child the responsibility and leadership that i was taking for my five brothers and sisters and then later in my teenage years when Uh, My father left and I was really taking responsibility and had my sister live with me and, you know, those kinds of things. So some of those leadership experiences that we have are are thrust upon us. But I so appreciate what you said about the ability uh, or the way that those inform your leadership for for all time and that, that any decision we make is not a one time decision. No, I, I, and I
1: think, that I, I, honestly, I think that this is the problem. Like, So there's a lot of talk, you know this, David. There's a lot of talk about emotional intelligence. And it's good. Don't get me wrong. It's good. And I encourage people to read Daniel Goleman's work and understand emotional intelligence. But it's different than emotional maturity. Mm. Emotional maturity and emotional intelligence are different. And emotional maturity is the one that's missing. So you can go read all the emotional uh, intelligence books and still be massively emotionally immature. So the emotional maturity is understanding the consequence and the ripple effect of something, including on yourself, that you looking back, because there's no cancel culture that can cancel me except me. Accept me. I can do that to me because I'm emotionally mature, because I'm willing to be to live with the consequences of what I do. So if the cancel culture comes along and says, oh, you know, you said this 10 years ago, you know what my answer is? Yeah, I did. There's no defense. I did. That's what I said. Was it right? No. Was it 10 years ago? Yes. Am I that person? No, I'm not the same person I was yesterday. I'm evolving And every time I make a step, I have to check that. And sometimes I misstep and I'm willing to look back. So emotional maturity, here's a key in emotional maturity. It's the ability to apologize. And I mean, genuinely apologize, not because somebody told you you should, but because maybe somebody made you aware that you go, oh, my God, I was unconscious. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I was immature. I'm sorry. Not because I'm afraid of being canceled, but because I understand as a mature human being, I have to be evolving. I didn't come out of the womb like some of the woke people who say, you know, you you should never have made that mistake. Well, I didn't come out of the womb perfect and I don't know anybody who did. So that doesn't work. But I'm willing to look and say, oh, yeah, I was that was a really poor way to be. Have I evolved? Yes. Like I put myself into therapy when I was 19 And I put myself into therapy and my therapist said, well, did your doctor send you? And I said, no. And they said, well, why are you here? There's gotta be more to life than this. At 19, and I was living in a ghetto. She'd never seen anything like this. And guess what? My therapists were feminists. I wanted feminist therapists because I could understand the way I was being with women was not the way to be. I got that, I just didn't know any other way. I had the, even at that age, had the emotional maturity to go, I don't know how to fix this, but I know it's not right. And rather than getting in my ego, I decided, no, I got to do something else. And I think that that's part of the problem in leadership. We don't give ourselves a chance to emotionally mature because we want to be right.
0: Boy, that ha- that desire and need to be right is so undermining to effective leaders, isn't it? You know what? The word, so that, ke- the word that keeps coming to mind is you're talking about emotional maturity in our leadership is responsibility. It's taking responsibility for ourselves, for our own development, for our growth, for where we are today, and recognizing mm-hmm. that, you know, hey, a year from now, I'm gonna know better on some issues, and so I can do better. Mm-hmm. But if we're always trying to be right, I mean, in every aspect of our leadership, I can look back at my own leadership. I cringe at some of the, <laughs> some sure. of the leadership mistakes I made in my early 20s as a frontline supervisor and the way that my team looked at me, like, dude, what is wrong with you? Right. But if I hadn't made those mistakes, taken responsibility, learned from them, I would never have grown. Yeah,
1: that, but that's the trap, right? People will say, if I hadn't made those mistakes, uh, I wouldn't have learned. Well, unfortunately, most of us make the mistakes and we don't learn. Mm. We get embedded in being right and then proving everybody else wrong. That's what emotional maturity is. It's oh, okay, can I learn? Can I grow? own my mistake and how can I learn from it? Not let's own my mistake three, five, 10 years from now and make it and, and then own it. If somebody comes to me, I want to go, okay. See, like I'm very pro-women, very me too and all those kinds of things. And I want to say every woman should be heard. Actually, every person should be heard because those kinds of things happen to men too. I know that personally. So everybody should be heard but not everybody should be believed. So what does that mean? It means I want to listen to you with my heart open. I don't want to shut you down or make you absolutely right because of your gender or make you absolutely right uh, because of your color or make you absolutely wrong because of your gender or your color or your sexual orientation. That's craziness. That's not emotional maturity. But emotional maturity requires us to look inward because that's the soul. We got to look inward and we're always busy. We live in an externally referenced world. And so if you don't know what, this is my work. If you don't know your emotional source code, if you don't know what your emotional source code is, you don't know what's driving you. You can't know your emotional source code without being mature enough to go. I don't know what it is. And let me look inside. Let me look within. Now you can do. Degree of that on your own, but the challenge is that nobody is objective in a subjective reality. Fish can't describe water, so you probably need some help, and that's what I do. But it's that maturity to say, I don't know, and I think the greatest immature statement we can make is, I know that. We say, I know that killer words, three words. I know that. What that means is your mind has now said, I'm no longer listening
0: and growth is impossible at that point. Absolutely. You know, as you're talking and, and some of the references you're making earlier, you were reminding me of, uh, uh, Ibram Kendi's work, you know, how to be an anti-racist. Cause when he, he describes his own journey and it is so self-reflective and throughout his journey, recognizing the different moments where he grew and he learned, yeah. Hey, I was limited in my approach to, this now, I have a broader and constantly, and just the invitation for all of us to be on the journey, and recognizing there's another step for for me to take, and whatever that journey is. I mean, whether we're talking about DEI initiatives, whether we're talking about leading our team, whether we're talking about leading our family, whether we're talking about just being a human being, that journey. If we're talking about how to. Do anything without losing our soul, without sacrificing our humanity. The openness to being on that journey, Dove. I just, I just think that is so powerful. Thank you for underscoring that for us.
1: Well, thank you for saying that because I, I, I can't point that out enough. Like you know, we hear all this new age woo woo crap that drives me nuts. Um, so I'm very clear about that. I'm, by the way, I'm deeply spiritual, but I have nothing, no interest in, in all that woo woo stuff. And but what I'm saying here is that. You know, a lot of that new stuff is, oh, you know, we're all on a journey. Okay. But what does that mean to you? Is that another excuse? Like, you know, oh, I'm not, we're all on a journey. I'll give you an example from something you said earlier. You did the best you could with what you know. Well, you know what? I- I'm not letting you off with that. And people go, what do you mean? You know, my parents did the best they could with what they know. All right. Let me ask you a question Was there anybody, did your mother, your father, your, uh, whoever it was, watch TV? Yes. Did they ever read a book? Yes. Then they didn't do the best they could with what they knew. They did the best they could with what they were willing to know. So you don't get off with that either. So if you're telling me, well, I did the best I could with what I know, did you have the opportunity to learn? Did you have the opportunity to grow? Yes. Can you look back and hold yourself accountable to that, that I did the best that I was willing to know? Because now I have a moment of of where I can mature and say, I'm willing to know someone else. I I had a limited understanding. I want to know more. I want to understand God, I was an idiot. All right, that's great. Now we've got a moment of maturity. Not Well, you know, well, it's to do with this quadrant of emotional intelligence. Who cares what quadrant it is? What you care about is the humanity of each other. When I look at you, I have to see you as a human. And what does that mean? I have to have deep compassion, deep compassion, but I also have to hold you absolutely responsible. And those two things seem in the world we're in today – to be completely separate. And to me, they're not. They're not. Not at all. I want to have deep compassion. I'll give you an example quickly. My wife will sometimes get upset with me because there was a guy in America. He was kind of orange and he lived in a big white house in some part of the East Coast. I can't remember his name now. Um, and you know, I, and I would talk about him with compassion. And my wife would say, how can you be compassionate for this person? And my wife is the most loving kind, compassionate person, but he would push her buttons. And I said, I don't have any compassion for the man. The man and his behavior, I have no compassion for. I have compassion for the child he was. Mm -hmm. Because I know enough from, because of a psychology background, I know enough to know that his father was a sociopathic narcissist who brutalized his children and that his eldest son who was named after him became an alcoholic and and basically killed himself due to the brutality he suffered. The younger, softer brother was named Donald, and he looked and saw that and went, ooh, that's not the way to be. I better toughen up and I better hide my feelings. He became a trained sociopathic narcissist. He's trained to be that way. That's not his nature. He's trained to be that way. Now, am I saying that he remembers that? Not at all. He's embedded in, in in the personality that he's in but who he was i can have compassion for cuz that kid must have been terrified sure right and so i can have compassion for that and i can still hold the other person accountable and be and say you need to be responsible here it they're not separate and this is so it's not you're bad and you're good you're right and you're wrong it's like hold on a second none of us have got that there is nobody's got the absolute on right or wrong. As much as people like to think that's it's not the case. So that soulful connection to your leadership is that when you're looking at your people, you got to remember, and you and I have talked about this before, that everybody's coming back to work. That's great. But who is coming back to work? Let's just pretend everybody comes back. Okay. we, You and I both know that's not happening. But let's pretend everybody's coming back. Of your workforce, you don't think there's some extreme left? You don't think there's some extreme right in your workforce? Now what are you going to do? And some people are saying, well, we're banning politics in in the office. Well, guess what? They're going to go for a drink. They're going to have coffee. They're going to have lunch. You can ban it all you like. That's not how it works. So how are you going to find the humanity, the soul of these people that joins them? If you don't do that, you've got war in your own office.
0: And that's a problem. And it goes back to you know I appreciate your clarification of the word journey, because the way that I'm defining that is it is taking responsibility for our own learning. And am I taking that step forward with the intention of learning more, of being a better leader, since we're talking about leadership, of of leading my team more effectively, of being able to bring the people together from wherever they might be, touching the soul, getting them on a unified purpose and mission. And uh, some of the things we'll talk about from your book, the community, the contribution, Mm -hmm. so forth am i intentional about doing that that's the work that's the journey and i i trust that anybody listening at this point in our show is on that journey is taking that responsibility (laughs) for themselves because they're listening and so thank you for being with us and and being committed to that yourself so dove before we we i want to dive into because we're in the middle of the great resignation and all of this as we're as we're recording today and, uh, and you've got a, a such a prescient work in the in fierce loyalty, uh, fiercely loyal about all of that. But before we go there, you have a unique perspective, which is, uh, as a, a leadership podcast, number one leadership podcast host, you have got to interview so many different people and talk to so many different thought leaders, practitioners. And your other podcast is, is fantastic about uh, or help me with the name It's about curiosity, right? Curiosity bites. Curiosity bites, and so you're you're talking to all sorts of different folks with different perspectives on life, and I am just curious if you wouldn't mind sharing because we've got an inquisitive audience, and I know sure. people listening would love to hear this about one or two standout moments, uh, maybe something that was particularly profound or meaningful insight that you've heard over over those many many hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of guests that you have have spoken yeah. with. Um,
1: you know. You're absolutely right. I'm so grateful for the guests I've had. Um, as you know, Leadership and Loyalty started 14 years ago. So there's been a couple of guests in, in the frame of leadership. But I, everybody I know who's my friend said, why the hell are you starting out a podcast? Like, you don't have time for that. And the truth of the matter was, it was for me. I wanted to have the certain conversations that I wanted to have. And people hold me in a framework, and I understand that I'm the one who set it up around leadership, but they don't know the other sides of me, which uh, are very wide and deep as well. So I want to have those conversations because when I looked at the world, I saw that, again, people were trying to be right or wrong. And I was like, okay, what we need to do is to listen to people who don't agree with us and not Listen with the intent to make them wrong, but listen with curiosity. I believe curiosity is the cure for the world. Mm-hmm. It's something I've had since my childhood. I think it saved my life. I personally think it saved my life uh, on many occasions. And so I wanted to have these deeply curious conversations with people who wouldn't, I wouldn't particularly agree with. So, for instance, uh, a guy who has now become a very good friend of mine, um, we spoke at the UN together. He was a guest on the show. Uh, he was the lead recruiter for the neo-Nazis in Western Canada. He took, went to the Canadian Supreme Court twice. He was taking them to to court um, to try and turn the Western states into white-only states. Um, He's a very good friend of mine. He wrote a book called Life After Hate. Uh, They're Mm. making a documentary right now um, that's already got Oscar buzz around it. Um, And talking to Tony and talking actually at the UN about why he was doing what he was doing. So again, talking about source code, emotional source code. When Tony walked into my office, a friend had gifted him an hour with me and he's sitting there for about 15 minutes and he's faffing around and he's talking around in circles. I'm like, and I just look at him and go, Tony, Damien paid for an hour for you. I'm expensive. Why are you wasting his money? And he just looks at me and he goes, okay. I said, what's going on, man? he looks at the floor and looks at the carpet, looks at the rug, like the answer's is going to be in there. And then finally, after swallowing a couple of golf balls, he looks at me and he goes, uh, I've been a neo-Nazi for blah, blah, blah. And he tells me the details. And I start to smile. And he looks up at me smiling and he is pissed off. Because <laughs> he's just, you know, he's just Bored ripped his heart you. open and, and bore his soul. And he goes, what are you laughing at? And I just looked at him and I said, "You do know I'm a Jew, right?" <laughs> and he goes, "F in irony." <laughs> and I said, "Yeah." And I said, "So what?" I said, "You know, I was born Jewish. It doesn't mean anything to me beyond that. But I was born Jewish." But I said, "That's not the point." Now, when we were at the, when we were at the UN and we were talking to, uh, during a panel, they asked me, "How could you as a Jew?" Offer assistance to somebody who's a neo-Nazi who denied your entire race, right? I said, oh, it's easy. And they said, what? I said, I, didn't, I wasn't dealing with a racist. And they said, what do you mean? I said, I wanted to look at his source code. So they said, well, what was the deradicalization language to do? Because I teach those skills, right? I teach communication skills. And I said, I didn't use any deradicalization. And if you try to, you will actually fail. And they go, well, how did you get him to come around? And I said, oh, Tony, what did I use? And he said, I don't know. He didn't use any de-radicalization. I said, what did we talk about? He goes, Monty Python, the parrot sketch. I go, exactly. And they said, well, what's the clue? And I said, that's what de-radicalization is. It's rapport. It's the willingness to step into somebody else's world. I had to find out where the bridge of commonality was with us. From there, what I found out was his source code. You saw a neo-Nazi. You would have seen the neo-Nazi. What I saw was an incredibly bright an incredibly insecure and ac- incredibly needing of love and acknowledgement and significance young man who found a venue where he got the love, he got the applause, he got the recognition, he got to express his genius because he is incredibly bright. He got to express his genius and they applauded him for it. He could have just as easily become an evangelical Christian or a Muslim or anything else. It was just the right sequence of things at the right time. If anybody had have stopped and said, what's going on at the source code with this individual? You'd have found out and gone, oh, okay, it's just a misdirect. No problem. And that's what Trump, trend- and now he speaks all over the world at Holocaust centers and everything. He's been to Auschwitz and done the documentary. That's an example of what happens when we're curious that's what happens when we stop coming at things from a preconceived agenda. Another quick example on Curiosity Bites is Howard Bloom. Howard Bloom was the PR guy for everybody in the 80s. We're talking about Prince. We're talking about Michael Jackson. We're talking about Queen. We're, you know, I mean, Kiss, you name it. Every band went through Howard Bloom. He was the guy. He got to know Michael Jackson. And at one point, they were going to do a tour. You may or may not remember this, where the Jacksons were going to get back together. And Michael Jackson was causing problems with his own desire to do different things. And they said to Howard, would you come talk to him? Because he's the only one who will listen to you. Because Howard would listen to him as a human being, hmm. not, as a, not as a superstar. And we got to talking about Michael Jackson being accused of molestation of children. And I said, you know, when I look at the source code of Michael Jackson, I said, obviously, I don't know. And I'm going to be honest with this. I don't know. But if I look at the source code of Michael Jackson, Michael Jackson did not molest any children. And he said, wow, that's really interesting. And I said, why? He goes, I don't think he did. I knew him well. I don't think he did. And I said, but I'll tell you what did happen. Michael Jackson was a little boy in a man's body. He never got to have his childhood. So when he got this massive playground that he got, he created, he invited other kids over to play. And if you invite other kids over to play, they want to hang out in the same bedroom and they want to stay in the same room. And yeah, they may even look at each other's buttholes because it's kind of curiosity of a child because I think he was that emotionally immature around his sexuality. He was still seven or eight years old around that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there was any uh, overriding sexual intent. That's, again, I put my hand up. That's my opinion based on his emotional source code. But that's, again, looking at somebody with compassion and the willingness to understand the source code of a behavior rather than something that the world wants to judge. Now, that takes that takes some doing. I get that because our judgments get in the way. But when we do that, it's transformative. Because if you're leading a team, you stop seeing that person as an asshole or somebody who's trying to cause problems, you start seeing them as What's going on with this person that I'm not seeing? Because here's the thing. I just want to say this, and I'll hand it back to you. I want to just give everybody this gift, if I could, please. It's part of my central philosophy. Everybody, and I mean everybody. That's David. That's me. That's you. That's your mom, your dad, your best friend, and your worst enemy. Everybody is in pain. Mm. And everybody is trying to feel better. How they're trying to feel better, that's where it goes off the rails. But they're all trying to feel better. Some trying to feel better with alcohol, some with cocaine, some with marching on the Capitol, some, some with, you know, standing in church on Sunday, some people with volunteering, some people with meditating for multiple hours, some people, you know, there's all kinds of ways to feel better. Some are socially acceptable, some are not but we're all in some kind of pain and we're all trying to alleviate that pain. Once you look at people from in that lens, it's not looking down on them because I'm in pain. Yeah. So let me look at what might you be in pain about this, this catalyzing that behavior and have compassion for that. Suddenly I can breathe. Suddenly you can breathe. Suddenly I've created a space for us to be together as equals, not as, Oh, look at me. i smart. I can see your source code. No, no. I can see your source code, that's my job, but I can see my source code too, so I can have compassion with you and say, hey, so at the UN, I said, Tony, you know, the reason I could do that with Tony is because I was that guy. And she said to me, the the, um, mediator said, you were a neo-Nazi? I said, no, of course not. I was a highly intelligent, highly articulate, highly creative, and highly in need of affection. Boy, I just went a different path than Tony. We're the same guy. You can empathize with that. Exactly. So the result is obviously not great, but the driver, once you understand the source code, it's like,
0: oh, okay. And that is the recipe for so much of the healing that our world needs uh, in so many different ways. Just a little bit. (laughs) Just a little bit. (laughs) bit. and, and, And all of this, as you're listening... And Dove just made the connection there for you as a leader, but I want to take a little bit deeper dive in there because this gets to some of uh, some of what you talk about from a leadership perspective and fiercely loyal and how we generate the kind of retention and fierce loyalty in team members and that I I think if if using the broad generality of of the corporate world at this point is realizing Mm -hmm. is a problem right now because there are millions and millions of you look at the stats right we got millions of folks that are are leaving their jobs for after a kind of a global stare down with mortality in this this pandemic and one of the things that is coming up for me as you're talking is when you talk about that approach to leadership of being willing to acknowledge your own source code to look at somebody else's emotional source code is in the book, you call it courage and vulnerability. And there is this Mm. interaction and relationship between leadership, courage and leadership, vulnerability. And and I don't know if you've seen this over the last 18 months, two years, but uh, we certainly have is that the leaders who are being the most effective through all of this are also some of the most vulnerable. It's a healthy vulnerability, but I'm curious, from your perspective, if you could continue this thread that that Mm -hmm. you've been sharing with us. When we talk about leadership, courage and vulnerability, what are we really talking about? And what does that look like in practice?
1: Okay, thank you. So the first thing I want to say to that is that um, if you are probably over 45, you probably learned that vulnerability was weakness. I certainly did. Um, and, And of course, I understand your discomfort with doing it so let me start there. second of all there's also this massive counter culture uh, cancel culture Um, and so that makes vulnerability difficult too so i'm not pretending it's easy but i want to give you the simple guidance around courageous vulnerability it's and this is where every because we we tend to polarize as a psychology human beings and so we go okay well i never shared anything so now i've got to share everything please understand this is not about emotionally vomiting on your people. If you do that, you will lose all respect. Don't do that. It's about, it's about reciprocal vulnerability with discernment. So it's like, I'm married. Are you? Yes, that's reciprocal. Oh, I have three kids and I have a grandchild. Oh, I have two children, no grandchildren. Oh. Um, I've been married for 10 years. Oh, I only been married for six years. You know, whatever it is. So there's a reciprocity to it. And you have to be aware of that. You can't go, okay, I'm going to be vulnerable. And then, you know, throw throw hell to the wind. I mean, no, no, no. Please pay attention. Again, emotional maturity is paying attention to what's going on. So the courage is, is that leaders go first. Leaders must go first. You can't wait for them to be vulnerable. You have to lead that way. But just to make it clear, if you're looking to keep your people, it is essential. So what do I mean? I'm going to give you a very simple example. I want you to think right now, somebody you know that you've known for, let's say, about five years, who is a really trusted, loyal friend. Five-ish years, let's say that. And place that person in your mind on one side of you. Now, on the other side of you, place somebody else that you've also known for about the same amount of time, who is kind of an acquaintance. And I say to you, okay, what's the difference between your trusted, loyal friend and this acquaintance? You no longer can say it's time because that's the that's the automatic answer. Well, you know, we've known each other long. No, no, we've known each other the same time. So why is this person your trusted, loyal friend and this person your acquaintance? And the answer is reciprocal vulnerability. I'm going to use a word here. It's a technical word, but I hope you'll understand it. They know your shit and you know their shit and neither of you are willing to use it against each other. Whereas with an acquaintance, one of you likely tried to reveal and the other person got uncomfortable and that put it into the mode of acquaintance. That's what happened. And people say to me, well, can acquaintance become a friend? Yeah. Go in, step in again, and apply the vulnerability model. Again, measured, discerning, and watch what happens. And you'll see very quickly, oh, this person can't go there. It's not bad or good, it's them. All right, they can't go there. Or, oh, and that person, some, this just happens all the time, a person goes, oh, I've been waiting for you to do that. I really want to tell you about this. And now that door's open and you've got a new real friend. So now think about that context in keeping your people loyal. Because I said this person is a trusted, loyal friend. You want that loyalty, they have to know the humanity of you. And that feels vulnerable, it feels scary, and you may even been trained to believe that people will lose respect for you. They won't, they'll gain respect for you. I get it, it's counter to what you've been trained in, what I was trained in, but without fail, it works every single time. Unless there is one proviso, you're dealing with a sociopathic narcissist, then they will use it against you, but they're going to use anything against you. They can anyway. So get rid of them.
0: And that's why we do reference checks. (laughs) Exactly. And and sometimes you've got to go a bit further than the reference check. Absolutely. It's funny. I often use that same proviso when when I'm doing leadership coaching development training is and the exception to this is if you have that, right? And, yeah. But the good news is that that is a small enough percentage. You're probably not talking about that kind of a person. And if you no, are, and then there's some other things. And you can recognize them.
1: You can recognize them. You may want to see them as something else, right? That which is happening all the time with uh, populist politics. You You may want to see the person in another way. But if you have emotional maturity, you also go, I really like this. But the core is that, and I can't support the core. And if you're okay with that, that's great. So a friend of mine who doesn't vote the way I would vote, uh, and he's, we're still very good friends, by the way, and he says to me, he said, but, you know, this is a really important issue. There was an issue going on. And I said, hey, I want you to know something, Steve. I agree with you wholeheartedly. If I could vote on that alone, this is this is something this is a hill i would be willing to die on but when you put a leader in front of that a very just cause and you put an unjust cruel mean and vicious person in the front end of that now all the righteousness has gone away you've actually tainted the cause so if you want to fight for the cause that's great but you need to put a leader in the front of that and that's now that's not just politics that's business that's a company you know don't tell me your company's purpose is, is to raise the world to a higher standard meanwhile you're as the leader doing these things that are destructive and you know you're using child labor like come on come on integrity means you hold you to the
0: standard not you hold everybody else who works for you to the standard so back to taking responsibility whatever values we're trying to build in the world organizationally are we taking responsibility for the expression of those ourselves and then in our teams absolutely and then that you know then we come to this this great resignation
1: which is just people as you said you know they got that look at they look to look at their own mortality and they got to reevaluate these are the moments in our, all of our lives where you get to reevaluate and you go what the hell am i doing i'm working this shitty job for this shitty boss i don't even like it here i'm out
0: and where am I going? I don't know, but it's better than dying here. And who can blame somebody if those things that they can say are true? The first statements you made, who I'm working for, the nature of the job, all of that, if they're true, that any of us would want to walk away from that. We may not choose to, but we I don't know anybody who would be content with those things.
1: No, and I think we talk ourselves into staying in places because we buy into the ego of the position. So many people don't leave jobs because their identity is wrapped into the job psychologically. And so, you know, well, I'm the VP of, you know, what will I be if I leave? You'll be a human being. Yeah. Oh, uh, but I want to have a title. No, I want have a business card. No, but you'll have your soul. Right. So yeah. I mean, I understand it. I get it. We also live in a world that is made of consumerism and you've got to put a roof over your head and all those kinds of things. I get it. But the, the pandemic brought people to realize that it can all stop like that. Just like that. And once that happens, you are going to look back on your life and go, "Am i okay with this. And a lot of people are not. And so yeah. if, you're a, if you're a leader, you've got to make sure that you are dealing with that. And again, the name of the show, as a leader, are you talk, speaking to or dealing with the soul of the human or the perfunctory measure of what they can do?
0: Well, totally. you said this is an opportunity. It's one of these once in a mo- once in a, li- a lifetime type cliche. But once every so often opportunities for every individual to look and make those determinations about their own life. It's also an opportunity from a leadership perspective, because if Absolutely. you can have the team and you can have the organization that is connected, that is seeing people as human beings, that is doing work that's meaningful in the world, that making the contribution, building the community, that has the cooperation, the collaboration using your four C's from fiercely loyal. If you can have that, you have a a once in a however long opportunity to be an attractive force and an even more powerful organization than you might have been before. Yeah, I think that
1: we're going to see, I've written about this a lot and spoken about this, we are going to see a massive transformation. So you've got two sides here. You've got one side who are rushing back to quote unquote normal. Um, normal isn't healthy. <laughs> normal is just whatever you got used to. Um, and people are trying to pretend everything's okay and go back to normal. And okay, so you know maybe we got vaccinated and maybe people go back to work. That's great. But normal isn't coming back. And so what happens, and you know this from my story, David, I fell off a mountain, got smashed to pieces. And people say, that must have transformed your life. And I always say, no, it didn't. And they go, what do you mean? No, that embedded my ego. Go, what do you mean? Aren't these moments supposed to wake you up? Aren't they supposed to be, uh, homo- no, no. I fell, I got smashed to pieces with my jaw wired closed. People would say to me, how are you doing? I'd say, I'm great, I'm coming back. There is no back, it doesn't work that way. That's not the moment. That is a pivotal moment. But the moment you, where you really are empowered is the moment it can go back to normal. It's the moment when the wires came off my jaw. It's the moment when I went out with my mates and had a fun night for the first time in several years and thought, okay, I'm back. It's that moment where everything can go back to normal that I made a choice, which was far more difficult, fell on my knees, fell into a deep, dark depression, wept, didn't cry, wept, sobbed and went, this is not my life. And I'm weeping for the life I had that is no longer in existence because it's not mine. Who am I? Why am I here? That's what counts. Not that pivotal moment. It's the choice point when everything can go back to normal. And that's what this is. This great resignation moment is now people are at the choice point. Oh, we could go back to work. Yeah, but I hated my job. We could go back to work. Yeah, I got to pay the mortgage, but I hated my boss. Yeah, we could go back to work and, you know, the kids are going to go to college. Yeah, but I feel like I'm my soul is dying there. I can't do it. It's an awakening that is incredibly powerful. And if leaders get on this, as you said, David, so, so important what you said. If leaders get on this, you will build teams of the most loyal Human beings who realize that what really matters and that you give a shit about them, that is what's going to work. And we're going to see massive organizations who are old school, who've lasted a lifetime, who will literally disappear. We'll see them just disappear. And people will go, do you remember when, (laughs) didn't they used to have 20,000 employees? Yeah. All working at minimum wage, all living a shitty life and all just zombies. And they walked away. My granddaughter right now, who is, this is one of my younger grandchildren. She's 16 years old. She's getting paid to stream on Twitch. Try giving her a job. Right. She's not lazy. She's had jobs. She's not lazy. She's just saying, no, I, I, why would I do that? That generation are saying, why would I do that? It's well, not that they're lazy. It's not that they're entitled. It's actually that they're a little more soulful.
0: Let's continue with this for one last kind of practical end note. So every time I talk with you, it's this way, like, OK, do we have three more hours? Thank you. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, we don't. What I'd like to do is take that inspirational note that you just shared and get to that why when you're talking in Fierce Little Oil about teams and organizations have cooperation, collaboration, contribution and community. I want to zero in on contribution yeah, because I know, talking with leaders sometimes, let's say I'm the VP of finance or, or technology or something like that, and my team is making sure the numbers balance or the servers stay online or, or what have you. And I recognize what you're saying, the importance of contribution, the importance of knowing we're making a difference in the world but we're not customer facing. I'm not the one making that person's day that much. As a leader, how do mm-hmm. I help my team connect with the contribution that we are making, find that and, and help people to find that energy and connection? Because I agree with you, it's incredibly important. And I also know leaders sometimes aren't sure how to get there.
1: Uh, it's It's a great question, David. Thank you for asking. So the first thing is, um, You may have read Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why. I recommend it. It's a good book, but it's not the why of your why, which is much deeper. And that's a whole different discussion we can have at another time. However, even there, knowing why you're doing what you're doing. So there's an old story. I'm sure you're familiar with it, that a man gets off a plane in a foreign city. As he gets off the plane, he walks out towards an area and he sees a man laying bricks. And he says, what are you doing? He goes, I'm laying bricks. And he walks a little further along where he's been laying the bricks. And he says, what are you doing? And he says, oh, I'm building a wall. And he walks a little further along. He sees another guy laying bricks. He goes, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm building a cathedral. And they're all doing exactly the same job. And then he finally meets the fourth guy. And he says, what are you doing? He goes, I'm doing the work of God. And so they're all doing the same thing. The only difference is the level of connection to what it means. That's the key. So actually, whether you're customer facing or not is actually not relevant. What's relevant is being soulfully facing to yourself and, and being willing to soulfully face your team. Why are you here, Bob? Why are you here, Susan? Why are you here, Charlie? You're like, why are you here? What like, and when I say here, I mean here in this job, sure. Here in doing what it is you do, absolutely. But on the planet, why are you here? Now, Bob, Susan, Charlie, Fred, you know, whoever it might be, might not know, but you've planted a seed. And, you know, what if you had a what if you had a conversation once a month where you took half an hour and it was a soulful conversation, which is why are we here? That bonding, that connection would be so incredibly powerful. And then if you got looked at that and said, let's say we've got six people in our team, and we go, okay, so let's see if there's a theme here. And we start to dig into the theme and then we go, okay, how can we contribute to this theme inside of our community here inside the, the organization and externally inside of maybe in the industry or maybe externally into, if you're a physical office, into this physical community? How could we bring that? Because these are the things that bring people together. These are the things that kept people loyal. So when we talk about contribution, contribution always ties to community. Whether it's the community inside of your office, the community inside of your team, whether it's community physically or the community inside of your industry, look at how I can add to that. Because every human being who is reasonably healthy or not insane wants to feel like they're making a difference. They want meaning in their life, meaning no one survives a meaningless life. No one. So this is a way to connect people And that is where contribution is to the meaning. So it's not the why really, it's deeper than that, which is the deep subjective meaning, which comes at the emotional source code level. When you get to that, oh my
0: goodness, people light up. So, so powerful. Absolutely. So there is your final practical recommendation, 30 minutes a month to have that conversation, that soulful, why are we here? What is the impact? What are we doing? And all that that comes from that. Dov, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Before we go, where can our listeners find you? So we already talked about the the podcast. So we've got uh, Leadership and Loyalty and Curiosity Bites, and you can find both of those wherever podcasts are. Tell us where else we should be looking for you. Um, If you
1: Google the name D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N there's going to be more than enough. Uh, Barron, I'm, I'm just about everywhere. But of course, on the social media, which is uh, you can, obviously on LinkedIn is my main place. But LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, etc., you'll find me on all those places. Of course, on the podcast platforms, as, as David mentioned, I also have a YouTube channel with over a thousand free videos for you to go look at. they are on a massive range of subjects talking about everything from, as we talked about leadership, politics global arms races uh, to, to heart and soul work. So it's, it's, there's a lot of powerful stuff on there. And I also have an outlet on Medium, which you may be familiar with, and that is called Dragon's Den. It's our publication. So there are other um, great leaders in there, writing in there as well. You can find us on there. But the truth of the matter is, if you want to find out more about me, I'm going to do something crazy, which is give you my personal email. Dov, D-O-V, at dot and I'm going to tell you why I'm going to do that because I have two podcasts and David has this podcast and I know what it takes. It takes work. The, you know, we don't get this hour free. It's our time. It's our energy. It's our commitment. And why do we do it? Of service. David's of service to you. He puts in the time, the energy, the effort to do this. So I want you to do something. I want you to write to David and I want you to write to me. And I want you to tell us what you got out of this show and what you're going to do with it, because information is within the hole in the donut. Transformation comes from application. So tell us what you've got. Tell us what you're going to do with it. And here's more I want you to go on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is, rate, review, subscribe to the show, and share it with other people because we need to not hoard what is good. If this was value, if you think I'm a nutter, great, don't share it. Please don't. I'm okay with that. I, I know I offend some people, and that's part of the plan. I'm not building a wider fence. I want to push you off the fence. Make your mind up. If you're with me, great. If you're not, that's okay. That's fine. But if you enjoyed this, write and tell me, Dov at what you got out of it, what you're going to do with it. If I can help you, I will. If there's something I can do for you, let me know. If you're a company or organization, looking for a speaker or something like that, let me know. That's fine. But also let David know because he puts the time in. And again, I need you to rate, review, subscribe to the channel, to David's channel, and tell your friends about it. This is a great show with amazing guests. The man puts a
0: lot of work in. Be grateful. Thank you, Dove. That was unplanned, by the way. That is that is Dove's heart and soul going, yeah, it going out. You didn't give me there. five
1: bucks for that. I promise.
0: <laughs> no, I promise not. But it is true, and so grateful for that. So, listen, we gotta we have to wrap up. Want to encourage you to connect with Dove. Take advantage of that offer. That's such a generous offer with the email to connect. Let them know what, what you heard, what you got, what you're gonna do with it. Uh, and you're building a connection. And that's the beauty of the world that we live in, is that you can connect with somebody like Dove. I was at a conference one time, Ariana Huffington did the same thing. Ten thousand people in the room. Yep. She said, I'm gonna give you my personal email address. Here it is. Boom. And if you want to X, do Y, send it to me. I thought, holy cow, i gotta take advantage of this. She said, You know where I can do this? Because there's ten thousand people in the room. And I'll be surprised if anybody takes me up on it. I said, challenge accepted (laughs) and had a great conversation. Some good things came out of that. So take advantage of this opportunity. And going back to where we started today, take responsibility for your leadership and you're on the way to being the leader you'd want your boss to be. Dove, thank you once again for being on the show. So appreciate it. My absolute pleasure, thank you. And to you, everybody, stay curious,
1: my friends, stay curious.